Heavenly Father, uh, continue to guide and direct our thoughts as we think about uh, the first human institution that, uh, that you granted to mankind, uh, something that is a, a great blessing but is, uh, has great um, theological, typological import to it. And so it's uh, vitally important, and um, especially in the chaos and confusion of modern society on this and many other subjects, we pray that you will help us to think your thoughts after you and to your glory in Christ's name. Amen. All right, uh, we are in the chapter of marriage, and uh, we're continuing on. So we looked at really the first three paragraphs in this, uh, this chapter last week, and that really just leaves us in the uh, London Baptist Confession of Faith, just one paragraph, paragraph four ends it. Uh, but we will go a little bit beyond paragraph four, and uh, we do need to address the subjects of not just marriage, but of divorce and of uh, remarriage as well. Uh, but let's, uh, let's begin by well, just reading a passage of scripture that we'll come back to. Uh, but this is 1 Corinthians 7. So 1 Corinthians 7, again, a lot of important principles of marriage and then especially of divorce and remarriage here as well. Um, but that, uh, uh, again, we, we looked at somewhat last week, uh, the Corinthians obviously were confused a little bit about marriage too and about uh, relations within marriage, and so uh, we read that last week, the beginning of that, that Paul had to address that. Um, but let's pick up in uh, verse 10. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, uh, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the un unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so... In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? All right, we'll come back to that, um, but you see some of those principles. So again, we are in this section on Christian living uh, that uh, begins with discussion of Christian liberty, but then also principles uh, in some of our main uh, kind of institutions and relations within uh, this life as Christians uh, to God, first and foremost, in worship, uh, and then to government, uh, to the, the civil magistrate, then principles of marriage, and by extension, kind of family, and then the church. And uh, uh, we're just talking about that. The, the chapter on the church is going to be lengthy, so while we've been going through some of these chapters pretty quickly, we're going to have to pause on the, uh, the church one for quite a while. Uh, and then kind of related issues. So that brings us almost to the end of, uh, of the confession. Uh, again, three basic institutions, spheres of sovereignty, arenas of authority and submission, uh, government, marriage, family, and the church, all under the ultimate authority of God, but each having their own God-given boundaries of their authority as well, which can overlap at times, uh, but uh, we need to, to think clearly about uh, and so, obviously, the state has something to say about 
marriage, uh, but ultimately that's uh, something within the, the sphere sovereignty of, uh, of the family. The church uh, plays a role in marriage as well, so there's a little bit of overlap between these in this chapter that we're looking at. Uh, chapter 25, first paragraph, the definition of marriage. We'll just go ahead and read these so we remember. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. <laughs> right, there you go. <laughs> There's between one man and one woman. Neither it is lawful for any man to have more than one wife, nor for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. So no polygamy and no, do you remember? Polyandry. Polyandry, yes, there you go. Polyandry. Uh, not as common as polygamy, but does exist in some places in the world still today. Uh, the definition of marriage, so positively, it's between one man and one woman. Negatively, no more than one husband or wife at a time. Uh, then, uh, paragraph two, uh, the purposes of marriage. Marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife, for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue, and the preventing of uncleanness. So, three basic uh, purposes, partnership, procreation, and Prevention, <laughs> prevention uh, of sin, um, protection, if you want to call it that. Paragraph three, where we ended last week, uh, the legitimacy of marriage. Uh, it is lawful for all sorts of people to marry who are with judgment or who are able with judgment to give their consent. Yet it is the duty of Christians to marry in the Lord, and therefore such as profess the true religion should not marry with infidels or idolaters. Neither should such as are godly be unequally yoked by marrying with such as are wicked in their life or maintain damnable heresy. And uh, so the legitimacy of marriage between all sorts of consenting people. Now, again, that's with the exception of uh, homosexuality, which we've already seen, paragraph one. It's going to be uh, with other exceptions that are going to be outlined uh, in paragraph four. Uh, but other than that, all sorts, meaning especially you know, unbelievers, they can marry. It's legitimate for them to, to marry, and those are, 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 are genuine marriages. Uh, but when it comes to believers, there's further legislation. Uh, believers must marry in the Lord, which means they must not marry unbelievers, whether uh, infidels, so just atheists and complete unbelievers, or idolaters, adherents of false religions, uh, and they may not marry uh, dubious professors, again, as I put it. So those who make a profession of faith claim to be Christian, but either in their life or in their doctrine undermine the, the credibility of their profession of faith. Yeah, Alec? Uh, does, does that mean that people who have been excommunicated or like can't be together? Well, I mean, it depends on whether the the church you're part of is operating properly or not. Yeah, so if it were, the, what's that? Yeah, a church goer, someone who, who's there, someone who's just not a member of a church, has never joined, but they claim to be a Christian, um, something like that, but certainly not one that's been excommunicated because they are to be treated now as, as an unbeliever. All right, so that is, uh, that's where we left off, and so we come then to the last paragraph, although we're going to go a little bit beyond this. As I said, paragraph four. Marriage ought not to be within the degrees of consanguinity or affinity. Those are fun terms. Forbidden in the word, nor can such incestuous marriages ever be made lawful by any law of man or consent of parties, so as those persons may live together as man and wife. All right, so this is just a further uh, laying out of the 
boundaries of, of marriage. Uh, again, it's between one man and one woman, um, but there are still certain degrees of consanguinity and affinity that are uh, forbidden, and forbidden in the word, but uh, as we'll see, uh, really I think this is just an expression of, of natural law, <laughs> uh, that yes, at times people have tried to permit and engage in some of these forbidden uh, unions, um, but overall throughout history it's been recognized that, um, that this is illegitimate. Uh, we won't take a whole lot of time on this, but um, I do have kind of one direction I'd like to take this. So Leviticus 18, you might want to turn there. Uh, Leviticus 18 is uh, the whole chapter given as a proof text here. Uh, this is in the Holiness Code. So this is, yes, in the Law of Moses. Um, but the, the question maybe we have to ask, as we've talked about things like theonomy, uh, this is what you would consider part of the civil law. So if this is Mosaic civil law, does that mean that these laws have expired? They're no longer binding on us. Um, but as we've seen, some of the civil law is reflective of universal, natural, and moral law. Is this uh, one of those passages or not? Obviously, our confession is appealing to Leviticus 18. right? We don't see in the New Testament any full fleshed out um, list of you know, those relatives and things that you, you can marry, you can't marry. Um, but we, we do have the one reference, of course, in uh, Mark 6.18. That's John the Baptist talking to uh, Herod. Yeah, Herod Antipas probably at that point. Uh, saying that you know, he, it wasn't permissible for him to uh, marry within that degree of consanguinity and affinity. It's, uh, I know it's not pleasant to think about and talk about some of these things. But you also have in 1 Corinthians 5.1, which is an important proof text. Of course, that's the chapter on church discipline, excommunication, but what is the sin that's being tolerated there in, uh, in the church at Corinth that they not only tolerate, but they actually kind of rejoice and they're proud of the fact that they're so open and tolerant. And Paul says, no, this is the kind of immorality that even, even the Gentiles <laughs> don't partake in. What was that particular sin? Yeah, okay, so it was a man who was living with his stepmother Right, so it says a man has his father's wife, so it's not his mother, but it's his stepmother. And, uh, and Paul can even say there, he assumes you know, that that's illegitimate, that is uh, immoral, that even the unbelieving culture around you recognizes that that's beyond the, the pale. Right, so he's appealing, and he can appeal just to sort of natural law categories. Well, the only place in the scriptures where we see kind of a, a fully fleshed out list of what those degrees of uh, relation are that are allowable for marriage or forbidden for marriage is Leviticus 18. Uh, we won't read through it all, uh, but you can see there's, there's an assumption of at least this idea of the forbidding of various incestuous relationships in 1 Corinthians 5 in the New Testament and the church age as well. All right, so the boundaries of marriage. This is my outline. Uh, God's authority to establish legitimate boundaries. Uh, degrees of consanguinity, degrees of affinity. Don't worry, we're going to talk about what that means. Uh, and then there's a kind of negative side of that, man's inability, you know, lack of authority to establish illegitimate boundaries. It's saying God has established these and no man, either by law or by consent. And again, I, I think this is really quite prescient. You know, yeah, you, you see, obviously, within 
the royalty in Europe, there was often the violation of these kind of laws and boundaries. And they felt they had the ability to do that because they are the law, right? They can do that. And this, our confession is saying, nope, no matter who you are, if you're the king, you can't, you can't establish the legitimacy of these relationships. But even it, it actually specifically, specifically calls out consent. Again, that is one thing that our society is increasingly confused about. Well, if they're just two consenting people, then who are we to, to forbid these things? Um, uh, all right, so it's, uh, it's interesting. So God's authority to establish, uh, going backwards, uh, legitimate boundaries. Marriage ought not to be within the degrees of consanguinity or affinity forbidden in the word. All right, what is consanguinity? What does the word itself literally mean? What is what is sanguine that 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 root word? What does that mean? Blood. Okay. So yeah, blood con with together. So it's 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 blood relatives, blood relations. You share to to a certain degree or another the same blood. You're physically related to each other. I always like um, where this word has gone. What does the word sanguine mean? If someone is sanguine, what does that mean? They're happy, they're, they're optimistic, right? It kind of comes from the, the um, oh man, I'm blanking on what the, the word is, the different humors of the body that they used to believe you had like bile and that would make you have a certain emotion or something like that. But, but blood, having see the sanguine was, was supposed to make you happy, right? And, uh, and all of that. Whereas the word sanguinary means what? It's bloodthirsty. <laughs> so it was like that. You gotta, you gotta be careful, sanguine or sanguinary. It's good to be sanguine. Not good to be sanguinary. Uh, but so a consanguinity, a degree of consanguinity. So yeah, degree of consanguinity is relation by blood. Now it's saying there's, there's degrees of this, right? Some of your relations, you share more of the same blood than you do with, with others. Uh, what then would be a degree of affinity? Yeah, by marriage. Okay, so relations by marriage. So degrees of affinity, relation by marriage. So you're not a blood relative of someone, but there has been that affinity that has been established. And again, because the scriptures view marriage as two people becoming one flesh, in essence, you're supposed to treat various degrees of affinity as though they were within a, a degree of consanguinity with you as well. Um, so you can see, and we could piece through all of the degrees of consanguinity and affinity that are outlined here in uh, Leviticus 18. Uh, but it was interesting, just kind of when you Google this kind of stuff, um, you know, this is, this is within law. They use the same language, you know, so state laws. Uh, uh, I think this is a state law thing, not federal law. Uh, and so you'll, you'll get different um, opinions in different states. I remember playing a game at one of our church game nights, and, uh, and it, was, it was one of these questions where you're supposed to answer and guess numbers and things like that. And the, the question was, in how many states out of 50 is it legal for you to marry your first cousin? It's, it's half, 25 of the states. California is one of those. And if you, I know we, we tend to think, oh, marry your own cousin. That's it. 
Well, that's actually one of the degrees of consanguinity that is not forbidden in the Old Testament. Now, I'm not saying go ahead and do that, but that's why, like, you know, you hear a lot about people marrying their cousins in Elizabethan England and stuff like that. It was, it was legitimate, I mean, from scripture, from all that, and different states, you know, will draw those lines at different places, but the baseline is here in, um, in, in Leviticus 18. So we won't uh, kind of go through all of this, but... Uh, now, this is my question. I don't know if any of you else uh, think in these terms, but is this a proof text for what we call theonomy? Now, again, remember, theonomy is basically the idea that the civil law in the Mosaic Covenant is supposed to be uh, the basis for all civil law in every uh, state and every uh, nation. Uh, we've talked about that at length. Uh, this is one of the places that gave me a little bit of pause where where our confession itself actually goes to the Mosaic civil law and assumes that that ought to be the case, ought to be implemented and enforced in other nations, right? Like England at the time or wherever you are. If you're confessional, does that mean on this point you have to be theonomist? Uh, what do you think, Alex? Good. All right. <laughs> or unique to the people of God, you know, in a sense. And, and how do we know that? We'll get there in a second, but Nate? How do you know that? <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. Uh, Walter? Okay. All right. Alec? All of the above. Okay, good. Uh, I think you, you actually can make this argument just from Leviticus 18 itself. Uh, look, at, look at Leviticus 18, read the first uh, five verses. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God, the covenant relationship and language. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. 
You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Now, that's interesting. That's quoted by uh, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. It's the principle of Mosaic law. If you do them, you will live by them. Uh, and then it goes on to, none of you shall approach any one of his close relatives. And again, that's the only thing that's really given as a reason for these laws. You're a, you're a close relative, right? There's a, a degree, a particular degree of consanguinity that they're going to be illustrated um, throughout this. But you notice here, this may be a little bit more indirect, but there's the assumption here that this didn't just apply to, to Israelites, right? The Egyptians and the Canaanites are also being kind of faulted for not observing some of these laws. Uh, and so you get a hint of kind of universal, uh, 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 universal applicability. Uh, again, Leviticus 18 is part of the Mosaic Law Code, but it is also evidently an expression of universal natural slash moral law in other words, these laws are not unique to Israel. I think we begin to see that in the first few verses. They apply to Egypt and the Canaanites, all nations, or they should have applied to, to these nations. Um, but also, in, you see at the end of the chapter, do not make yourself unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. <laughs> He's saying that they, this was, it, it was binding on them. They are at fault, and they, are, they were exiled. They were kicked out of the land because of, of these particular sins as well. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. We've talked about that uh, vividly language, but you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you for the people of the land who are before you did all these abominations so that the land became unclean, lest the land vomit you out when you have made it unclean as it vomited out the nations that were, that were before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people, so keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that, they, that, that were practiced before you, and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. So you can see uh, the other nations were held accountable for these types of sins as well, and that particular use of that word, abominations. right? Really, that's a, that's a key whenever you see something that's called an abomination, that you're dealing with natural moral law, right? This is something that's universally uh, uh, applicable, that is, uh, is always binding, uh, right? These are among the universal abominations that include in this chapter, adultery, verse 20, child sacrifice, verse 21, right? So we're in the same category uh, here, uh, homosexuality, verse 22, and bestiality verse uh, 20, uh, well, 23, I don't know why I have 24 there. Uh, but you see, it's in these, it's lumped in with these same kind of categories in chapter 18, which is kind of a discrete unit. So um, I don't think I have to necessarily prove that to you, but, but yes, we're dealing with universal application. This isn't theonomy, this is just natural law. Yes? Yeah. 
Yeah, as long as in that analogy, theonomy is the dirty water. Yeah. Right? So, okay, we're, okay, we're good. No. <laughs> All right, well, uh, enough of that, but that was always something that was in my mind and, and uh, kind of wondering about. Uh, yeah, Nate? Oh, sure. So in the situation you just ran through, mm -hmm. um, that was that scenario, it was a narrative, I think, because he had his father's life. Mm -hmm. That that was unlawful because his father had married that woman. Mm -hmm. So that it isn't that woman may have been lawful for that man to marry. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, I, obviously, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's okay. it's in the law. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. the affinity issue is it is it like in that situation where it's unlawful for the father? Is it an, like an honor your father type thing thing where it's I don't I don't honor my brother and I don't have to honor my brother in the same way that I have to honor my father? Why can't I take Yeah, the, 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 what's called leveret marriage, um, that I, I would say is just a unique kind of case, that it is one of those things that was specific to Old Testament Israel. Obviously, it's no longer binding upon us, you know, in this day, that it was related to the typology of inheritance and of descendants and all of that. The, the express purpose was uh, your brother died before he had a child, and so therefore his legacy, his inheritance uh, would, would end there. Um, and so in order to get uh, uh, um, you know, an, an offspring for him, then, then that is why that existed. Um, and uh, yeah, but you know, the, the idea of, of you know, not having your father's wife comes straight out of uh, Leviticus 18.8, and the... the um, the reason that's given is, you know, verse 8, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. You know, it's, it's that, again, that union of marriage. Um, and so I would say the leveret marriage uh, situation is just kind of an exception to this that, that was only for Old Testament Israel. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, fun stuff to talk about, isn't it? All right, so what marriages are therefore forbidden? Well, uh, just in, in general... Uh, if you're going to summarize it, it's marriages of consanguinity or affinity within the third degree is, is what we call. Now, we're not going to walk through all of this. We don't need to. Uh, you can look up stuff like this. This is just one chart that you can find out there. I can't really read the red very well, but here's like you or your spouse. So these are degrees of consanguinity within the first degree, your children, parents. Uh, degrees of consanguinity within the second degree, again, that's just you know, all depends on how much blood do you share, uh, would be grandchildren, brothers and sisters, uh, grandparents, and then third degree, great-grandchildren, nieces and nephews, uncles and aunts, you can see first cousins would be within the fourth degree of consanguinity. And so in 
some states, some, some nations, even within scripture, that one is not absolutely forbidden. So it's kind of like taking Leviticus 18 and kind of piecing together, okay, what are the actual degrees of consanguinity? And in some, it's degrees of consanguinity or affinity within the third degree are forbidden. So it's you or your spouse within that consanguinity or affinity. Okay, uh, good. Alec? Um, There is, I think, one exception, uh, at least one exception within Leviticus 18. Yeah, and I I think that, again, it has to do with some of the typological significance of of that day. So, yeah. All right. So uh, these boundaries now, again, kind of the negative side of this, God has authority to establish those legitimate boundaries of consanguinity and affinity, uh, and we still follow those today. Uh, But man, uh, because God has done that, no man, even the king, can can change that. So not by law, probably again a direct contradiction of royal claims of the day, and not by consent. And as I said, a prescient contradiction of popular claims uh, of today. And again, yes, there are people arguing against these forbidden degrees of consanguinity based just purely on the magic of consent. You know, that's the only thing that matters. As long as there's consent, then anything goes. No, no man can do that. Uh, And so this does mean, whereas, um, you know, uh, marriage between a believer and an unbeliever is a violation of God's law, it is a sin, but once entered into, it is a legitimate marriage, not so with this. Um, and so this, if, if there's a marriage like that, it's just, it, it's dissolved, right? It's not a legitimate marriage no matter, no matter what. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's move on. So that was paragraph four. That's the end. Uh, that's where our uh, confession ends. Now, as I mentioned before, uh, the original, original Westminster Confession of Faith, we won't go into all the historical stuff behind this, but actually uh, the, the original title of the chapter was Of Marriage and Divorce, And so there were two extra paragraphs um, that our confession and the Savoy and eventually the published edition of the Westminster in England did not include. uh, And it's uh, paragraphs on the idea of divorce and remarriage. So this is what um, the paragraphs five and six say. And then I'm just going to read them and then you let me know your first initial impressions. All right. Uh, Adultery or fornication committed after a contract being detected before marriage giveth just occasion to the innocent party to dissolve that contract. In the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce and after the divorce to marry another as if the offending party were dead. And these are the, the proof texts given. Paragraph six, although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage, yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage, wherein a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed and the persons concerned in it not left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. What do you think of that? 
I don't hate it. <laughs> I think there's a couple of things that are kind of unique to, um, to English law at the time, right? The whole, what's the, the reference here to a contract? Yeah, engagement, right? Engagement in, in Old England was a, a legally binding process, right? If you were even going to break off an engagement, you had to show cause. Um, you know, again, you, you watch or read, I guess, if you're into books, uh, you know, Jane Austen type stuff. Uh, th that's why it was a big deal. Like, right, if you got engaged to someone, you did not break that off, right? That's the whole point of sense and sensibility, right? Uh, he entered into an engagement when he was really young, and then he falls for another woman. But the honor he's so honorable because he will not even break off that engagement, even though she's obnoxious. Uh, so, so again, there's something like this. Of course, the proof text given here is Matthew 1. What's Matthew 1? What's that? After the genealogy. Yeah, Joseph and Mary, right? So Joseph, what is he going to do? Uh, his, his betrothed, right, the one he's engaged to, and again, back then it was a legally binding situation as well. She's, she's pregnant. You know, what's the assumption? Of course, she, she was engaged in immorality, right? She was engaged in fornication. Obviously, she wasn't. Uh, but what does he say? He was, he was minded to, to put her away privately, right? He wasn't going to expose her. He wasn't going to, you know, shame her unduly. He was a just man. But he was going to, the, the word is divorce. He was going to divorce her uh, privately. Um, and so it's just saying, you know, he was a just man. That was an, an okay thing for him to do. Now, again, we don't really view engagements with the same kind of binding authority now. But it says, okay, after marriage, if there's adultery, then it's lawful to divorce. And it's lawful to remarry as though the offending party were, uh, were, were dead. Yeah, Alex? Sorry, we moved on probably from what you were No, I, I think it was. They were engaged, but it was it was viewed as as legally binding as well. But no, it was understood they were not yet husband and wife. That didn't happen until the actual marriage took place. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe you know more about the background of, of that than I do. That's how I've understood it. Alec? Yeah, yeah. It's it's acknowledging. Okay, uh, so you, so you have an exception there, right? The exception of adultery, right? So uh, so divorce is legitimate, can be legitimate in the case of adultery, and if there's legitimate divorce, there can be legitimate remarriage. And then uh, more directly in paragraph six, and I, I again, yeah, as, as Alex said, I like that. You know, it's this is coming back to man's corruption, right? And it's, so it's saying that a lot of people will study arguments unduly to put asunder, asunder those whom God has joined together in marriage. So it's saying sinful people will at times look for illegitimate excuses and try to justify their divorce. Um, but it says, what are the, the only two exceptions? Uh, yet nothing but adultery, 
or such willful desertion as can in no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of, of marriage. And then there's a statement, too, that says even in those cases, this needs to be a public and orderly course of, of proceeding, right? You're not just left up entirely to your own will and your own discretion in these matters, right? And so there has to be a, 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 a you know, kind of proving of, of the grounds of divorce. So again, this is something that had been the case, has been the case for generations, and yet within our own lifetime, some of us, uh, now there's just no-fault divorce, right? It's just acknowledged you don't have to have any argument whatsoever. You don't really have to, you're just entirely left up to the whims of your own fancy and heart, and, uh, and you can divorce. But it wasn't the case. It has never been the case. Uh, and it's a, a, an acknowledgement, too, that there should be involvement with the church and the civil magistrate. Even that I don't, <laughs> I don't have any qualms with, because uh, this is a, an institution that, that is common to all mankind and is the legitimate purview of civil government as well. Yeah, Walter? It's interesting that here in California, um, if you've applied for divorce, um, the judge requires six months minimum, mm -hmm. and sometimes uh, an attempt at counseling for reconciliation. Now, that, that doesn't mean wow. that folks are going to uh, go with the counseling, yeah. you know, um, but that's a requirement. California still does that? Yeah. That's surprising to me. Wow. Oh, I got divorced. I'm like, did you apply for divorce? Oh, huh. no. Are you, I'm separated. Are you legally separated? Hmm. No. So, hmm. yeah, it's got to be a household issue. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm glad there's at least some discouragement and dissuasion from it. That's, uh, that's actually encouraging to me. That's, that's probably not going to be lasting very long, I would imagine. Alex? Yeah, we'll, we'll look at that. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it is interesting. Um, okay, so uh, I won't get into Deuteronomy 24. Um, we've talked about that in the past. I, it's, it's, it's a complicated passage. Uh, but of course, you have reference to, to Matthew 5, to Matthew 19 in both places. Um, uh, that's Christ's teaching on divorce. So that's the, the first exception, you know, where he talks about adultery. Uh, we'll look at that, and then uh, 1 Corinthians 7.15 is the proof text for the second cause of, uh, or, or grounds for divorce, which is willful desertion. Uh, so you've got those two exceptions, adultery and willful desertion. Now, does that mean that there are no other exceptions whatsoever? Um, I know this, we have 20 minutes to try to get through this, and it's a big subject, and it's, it's one that um, even a lot of different reformed Christians come to different conclusions about. I'll give you my uh, understanding and interpretation of how these passages fit together, um, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll call it quits. <laughs> but I, I do think we need to address this because, again, divorce and remarriage are such common issues. I mean, uh, it, you know, just this week uh, I, I've been involved with kind of a counseling situation that relates to marriage and divorce and these things. I mean, it's, it's sad. It's a, a horrible reality of the sin of this world that um, even something as, as beautiful and wonderful as marriage can be, can be corrupted and can, can fall apart. Uh, so let's just look at a little bit of, of these ideas about divorce and remarriage. So 
Um, there's a, a few different and variations between these, but, but basic camps of, uh, of understanding. And again, as I said, even some Reformed, some Reformed Baptists uh, fall into various of these camps. So, so one is the idea of, uh, of, of marriage permanence, as it's called. So there's a marriage permanence view. And, um, you know, this is, uh, I believe still, even the, the, uh, the position of Vody Bauckham. A lot of people within the, uh, the family integrated movement. And it's just absolute marriage permanence. So there is no divorce, no legitimate divorce. And so there is no legitimate remarriage sort of whatsoever. Um, in any circumstances. And, and that, I, I don't know, honestly, well, I, I do know where my dad falls on these things, but within the broader kind of fundamentalist camps that I grew up in, this was probably the default position. Um, just nope, no, absolutely no, no divorce whatsoever. Um, I don't know what they do with passages like Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7 and some of these others. And uh, again, it would be sort of editorializing a little bit here. Um, I have seen this position do tremendous damage to people's lives. Um, just one example, one of the uh, professors that I had in Bible college, he was telling a story about when he had been, um, had been a missionary in Eastern Europe uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union. And uh, he, was, he was planning a church. But anyway, and he, he was there, and there was a woman who um, was a believer, she was in the church, she was married to an unbeliever, he was an alcoholic, he was abusive, he was, he was cheating on her constantly. He wanted to divorce her, and uh, there at the time, you know, she had to agree, she had to sign the paper in order for there to be a divorce. And so he would come to her, he wasn't living with her, he was living with other women, he would come to her every night with the divorce papers, tell her to sign when she wouldn't, he would beat her, he would beat her children, and, 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 and this just went on and on and on. And his counsel to this woman was, no, you cannot sign those divorce papers because there's no legitimate divorce. I mean, that I, it just breaks your heart to, to hear. But, and I could tell you other stories, too, of horrific abuse and things that are allowed to go on because of this unbiblical view. So no divorce, no remarriage under any circumstances. Uh, Semi-permanence would be, uh, I think this is kind of what I, what I grew up with, is that, okay, there can be divorce under certain circumstances, but there is never, if you are divorced, there's no possibility of remarriage. Um, and uh, again, we'll, we'll look at some of the passages that, that talk about this, um, seem to indicate this, but how do we understand it? And then, uh, this is the, the title is given, uh, permissive, that sounds bad, just kind of a free-for-all. No, not a, not a free-for-all, but with the permission that God reveals in his word, uh, it's probably a better word for it, but um, that there can be a legitimate divorce and, there, and then legitimate remarriage, again, under certain circumstances. Not no-fault divorce, nothing like that, but uh, that we see that in, in the scriptures. Uh, so again, you're going to run into different Christians, even Reformed, Reformed Baptists that uh, hold to these different positions. Uh, obviously, I'm going to be kind of arguing for the, the last one. Yes, Alec. Well, yeah, I think it very clearly falls under First Corinthians yeah. seven. Yeah. But I do think people are too quick to like go out and marriage, like they like if a woman is dating 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, with the caveats that we, we have to give, divorce separate legitimate, again, has to be emphasized, kind of like that. Every divorce is contrary to God's original design, um, and it is the result of sin, <laughs> every, every, every single one. Uh, not always on both parts, often on both parties, but on, on one or the other. Um, and so, yes, again, as, as uh, when, when the Pharisees came to Christ and said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Again, that was reflecting a disagreement in even Jewish law at the time. Um, is it only for, uh, for adultery or is it because uh, she, you know, burnt the, the lamb last night for dinner, you know, kind of thing. Um, and so obviously there are differences even in that. And what does Jesus do? He goes right back to God's original purpose. And so, yes, uh, marriage uh, is something that, that believers ought to take very, very seriously, that even when there are difficulties, um, should try to, to salvage. Um, but there are times, even as the Westminster states it there, and I think as Christ and Paul acknowledge, there are times when the, the bonds of marriage are just so absolutely broken and, and shattered that, um, that it's okay to, to recognize that and to move on. Uh, every effort must be made to preserve and reconcile uh, every marriage. Uh, however, in the real world in which sin abounds, God does per permit divorce in certain circumstances. Uh, and so let's look at uh, Matthew, Matthew 9. This is the proof text that's used there in the Westminster. Well, Westminster was published without proof text. This is something probably was added a little bit later. Uh, but Matthew 9, uh, where am I? Matthew 9, 4 to 6. What am, where did I get these numbers? Ay, ay, ay. It was a long week. Wait, where? What am I looking at? Is it Matthew 19? Oh, 19, sorry. All right. Yeah, there you go, Matthew 19. Um, so verse 3, the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce every, uh, one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. I mean, that's the high teaching on marriage that Christ gives. That's the general principle. Uh, they said to him, then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. <laughs> so I think it's, it's amazing. There's this, an explicit exception right there that Christ, Christ gives. Um, but the, again, uh, we need to start with that high view of marriage, but we, we live in the real world. So under what circumstances does God permit uh, divorce? Uh, adultery, abandonment, abuse. Uh, that's a, another question. Uh, anything else? Um, so we'll run through these uh, pretty quickly. Uh, the first of these, I think, is quite straightforward. Matthew 19.9, uh, Christ says, yes, you can't divorce and remarry another woman except for, uh, and then it's porneia, right? It's just the generic word for sexual immorality, right? So it's not only adultery. It could be other types of sexual sins. Uh, it could be, 
even something I would say like a, a, a persistent and unrepentant use of, of pornography or something like that. You can see the word right there. But sexual, sexual sin, this is again an explicit exception. It's a, a wide variety of, of sexual immorality. Now again, it does not necessitate divorce, but it is a legitimate grounds for divorce. Again, I have known people that there has been adultery and they've worked through it and there's been forgiveness and there's been reconciliation and it's a wonderful thing to see, um, but it is a legitimate ground for, for divorce. Okay, so adultery, I think that one's quite clear. Abandonment. Abandonment, if you want to use that word, or willful desertion. Now, this is uh, 1 Corinthians 7. Now, uh, you can see kind of my translation of that right there. I don't really don't like how, uh, how the, uh, the ESV translates this. But uh, verse 15, we'll just read that again. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. This is such an important verse, and this was the one that immediately came to my mind when my professor in college was telling me that, that story. He was saying, no, you are enslaved in this horrific marriage, and yeah, there's adultery, and there's abandonment, and there's abuse, and this is an unbelieving partner. He's obviously not consenting to live with you in peace, and what, is, what does Paul say, say here? If the, the unbelieving partner departs, if he divorces, it's actually a command. It's an imperative. Let him depart. <laughs> let him, let the unbelieving spouse who doesn't want to live with you in peace any longer, let him go. It's a command. Now, again, does that mean that you automatically have to do this, that you don't try to you know, reconcile and work through it? You can if you want to, but... This is very clear. We are not to, to bind consciences to such a way. that I mean, and then just that, that, that reasoning, but God has called you to peace. Just think about some of these marriage permanents who, who keep uh, people in these, these horrible marriages with unbel clear unbelievers where there is just absolutely no peace, uh, to put it mildly. Uh, but yeah, it's, if the unbeliever departs, let him, let her depart. Now, some argue, okay, well, this is only the particular case of a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever, right? So it's narrow, and therefore, you know, if it's two believers and one of them departs, there's, there's no possibility. One deserts, there's still no possibility of marriage for, for those believers. Now, how would you answer that? I'll go with someone else there. Nate? Yes, yeah, and if you're in a properly functioning church, right, if, if, if both people were, were members in the church, if one violates their marriage oaths and deserts uh, their, their spouse, well, what's, what's immediately going to happen? Church discipline, and that church discipline process is going to carry through, and if there's not reconciliation and there's, there's unrepentance on that part, eventually what's the outcome? They're excommunicated, and therefore, they're treated as an unbeliever, right? And so, and, 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 and I think that logic then uh, does extend through to, to other things, as, as we'll see in a moment. Um, but again, this is another clear, clear, explicit exception that the Apostle Paul gives to us, right? Christ says, only for adultery. Uh, Paul says, well, oh, there is also abandonment as a, as a ground. And, and again, without throwing the doors wide open, 
I think, you know, what, what do adultery and abandonment or desertion have in common? Well, there's something that just absolutely fundamentally violates the covenant relationship of marriage. And uh, again, without throwing the doors wide open to a no-fault divorce, you know, you burn my meal and, and I have excuse to, to divorce you, I do think that really anything that serves as an absolute fundamental violation of the marriage covenant uh, can, in the proper procedure, serve as, as, uh, as, as a grounds for divorce. Um, I won't get into it, but uh, I remember Dr. Van Drunen when he was teaching on, on uh, this subject. He shows in, in the prophets how uh, sometimes uh, something like failing to provide for, for one's spouse, for, for a wife. You know, okay, well, what are you doing? You're, <laughs> right, you're, you're, you're violating fundamentally what you promised to do in your marriage covenant, and that that could also serve as something like a, um, uh, a grounds for divorce. But again, let him, her depart, it's an imperative, it's another clear exception. So you have at least those two, and those are the two that are outlined in the Westminster. Yeah, Cameron? Yeah, worse than an unbeliever. Yeah. 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 And that connection there as far as mm-hmm. and, and a lot of times yeah. when you go into those situations, people want to say something like, well, if they're just physically abusive, then they're not committing adultery, then you shouldn't. But mm-hmm. usually you don't have only one. Yeah, yeah. You know, so not to put in heads, but it's kind of it's that whole thing of freedom as an unbeliever because. Mm-hmm. They're acting like an unbeliever and worse. Yeah, yeah, and especially that that closest of all bonds of, of marriage. Uh, again, because the believer is not enslaved, God has called you to to peace. That's uh, that's Paul's reasoning there. Now, uh, abuse or anything else. Um, now, here's where I think just we can extrapolate that same you know logic there uh, that we just saw with with abandonment again if the situation is between a believing and an unbelieving spouse abuse or neglect would constitute an unwillingness to consent to live with the believing spouse in in peace right that's what right okay maybe they they aren't actually abandoning but they're make, making it very clear they're not consenting to live with you uh, in peace and again as something as a, a fundamental violation of the the marriage covenant, uh, I would say, again, clear abuse. Now, again, it, it, going through the proper procedures, going through the proper order, especially within the church. So most people, again, would acknowledge that abuse is uh, kind of the same thing. It's, an, it's in essence, a, a form of abandonment, right? You are you're not consenting to live together in, in peace. Um, now, assuming that both of the spouses are professing believers and members of the church, uh, this is kind of how it would play out. If there's an allegation of abuse or of neglect, you know, something like that, uh, the process of church discipline will ensue, and thus neither party will be left to their own wills and discretion. Again, that's the language of the Westminster Confession of Faith. But if the church discipline process results in one spouse's excommunication, then he or she, again, is to be regarded as an unbeliever. And then I would say in that situation, the principles of 1 Corinthians 7, 12 to 15 would apply. Um, so uh, I think that, oh, and then remarriage, we need to talk about that in two minutes. <laughs> so that is, um, that, that's kind of how I, I piece together the different you know, passages that we have in, in scripture. 
Um, again, marriage is to be taken very seriously, especially between believers. But because of sin, you know, God, in his grace, does allow uh, in the real world for, for divorce under certain circumstances. We need to, to carefully define those, especially within the church. Now, under what circumstances is remarriage permissible? Is it, is it permissible? Well, if a divorce is legitimate and thus the marriage is truly ended, which is what I would argue that's how scripture uh, speaks of it, then remarriage is also legitimate just as remarriage after the death of a spouse is legitimate. Uh, and that's the proof text that's given there from Romans 7. You know, right, one dies, you're, you're, you're free in that sense. Um, and I, I think, yeah, we can extrapolate that principle out to if there is a legitimate divorce, then that marriage is ended, and therefore there can be the, the possibility of remarriage as well. Now, what about Mark 5.32, Mark uh, 10, 10 to 12, you know, other passages like Christ says, if one divorces and marries another, he he commits adultery or he makes the, the woman to commit adultery. And so, again, this is that middle uh, position where some, some Christians are where, okay, divorce can at times be legitimate, but there's just no possibility of remarriage. Uh, any type of remarriage is, um, is, is adultery. Uh, I would say in these passages, divorce and remarriage are considered as one act. And really, if you look at them, they're, they're both, you know, aorist, uh, tense. Uh, they, they are viewed as kind of one act, right? What is this? One is divorcing his wife in order to marry another woman, right? And so this is leg illegitimate. Uh, it's basically just a, a kind of legalized adultery, if you want to call it that, right? Uh, and so it's kind of viewed as that one act. It is therefore adulterous because you're divorcing in order to, to marry another, um, but I, I think in that logic, and as we've seen, if one has legitimate grounds for divorcing because of adultery, then that marriage is ended, uh, uh, remarriage can take place. Likewise with abandonment or abuse, you know, any of those legitimate grounds for, for divorce. Uh, in such cases, however, the one act of divorce and remarriage, uh, wait, what am I? Oh, okay, so in such cases, so even if it is what Christ is outlawing there, which is divorcing in order to remarry another person, and so in a legalized kind of adultery sense. But even in that case, the act of divorce remarriage is sin. Again, it's that aorist uh, uh, tense. The action itself is sin, but the marriage is still binding and, and, and legitimate once it's been entered into. So again, you, you come across this within the church too with, with believers that maybe in the past they had divorced illegitimately, they had then remarried, and I would say, well, then that act of remarriage was sinful because you were not legitimately divorced, but now there's a marriage. And so to continue to live as man and wife isn't sinful, right? You just now repent of that, you receive the forgiveness of Christ, and, and now that, that marriage continues. Uh, you don't have to end it, which is what, again, some pastors would, would instruct people who divorced and remarried Nope, you're not actually married. You need to, you need to end it. Um, so, again, it's important that we're, we're clear about these things. We handle the word of God very carefully because it can do real severe damage, uh, spiritual and, and physical damage to, to God's people, uh, like we always do when we go beyond the, the word of God and the law of God. All right, well, let's, uh, let's pray. Uh, I'm trying to end a little bit more on time than we normally do, so let's, uh, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, again, thank you for the instruction that your word gives and, and how relevant and wise it, it is to all of our lives.
thank you for marriage and thank you those of us who have the, the joy of being married. We pray that we will uh, even now uh, recommit ourselves uh, to the, the responsibilities and the, the vows that we, we took in our marriage and, and ultimately that um, uh, they would show forth that, uh, that, that true and eternal marriage of, of Christ and his people. Uh, pray this in the name of Christ our, our bridegroom. Amen.